Sheikh Patchway, good afternoon or good day. We have our A War Cry podcast today, and our intent is this is we're bringing you our fourth micro method workshop with content expert on MMIW, uh, MMIP, and task forces. Uh, this is a collaboration with War Cry podcast, and our sponsor for this micro method workshop series has been Na Ilahi Fund. Again, this topic can be sensitive and triggering, so please take care while you listen. Uh, this uh, episode of War Cry Podcast, we're an all Native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered Natives. We are located on the Yakima Reservation with headquarters in Toppenish, Washington. Uh, but with usual and accustomed places that extend throughout many states. We thank you for joining us for this episode, and we are happy to answer any questions you might have after. Just make sure to leave it in uh, the comments or chat. My name is Emily Washings, and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and our guest is Chris Cuestas with National Violence Prevention Resource Center. I'll turn it over to Chris to introduce himself and go over the topic that we're gonna talk about today. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. And this is our, our fourth uh, micro method workshop and we're going to be dealing with the issues of basically forensic case examination and case analysis. And also how do we develop a or follow a matrix uh, for solvability and then where and where do we get started all along the way what we've been trying to do and the reason that we came up with the strategy and the war cry podcast has been an amazing partner was we wanted to kind of uh, assist the communities in developing their task forces because that is probably one of the issues that are greatest challenges in a community is to create inertia and positive energy around subject matter, whatever your topic is that you choose to address in the, in the form of a, a community-based grassroots initiative. And there was a lot of delay uh, with regards to, and I just spoke to a good friend of mine, also in the Pacific Northwest and said, we were given a, uh, a notebook, but we really weren't told anything else other than here's a notebook from whatever group was used for the MMIW, MIP issues in, in the state of Washington and in the Pacific Northwest. So in seeing that, uh, you know, I, I talked to War Cry Podcast and also staff and uh, thought that maybe we should uh, assist from our level of experience and working task forces, uh, uh, initiatives and tribal lands for uh, it's funny, an elder asked me the other day, well, uh, and how long have you been doing this, young man? She asked me last week, and I said, well, ma'am, just uh, a couple of weeks shy of 42 years, so I'm still a rookie. <laughs> and she started laughing. She goes, no, I'm pretty sure you're an authority now. I said, well, thank you very much. So that's our intent. And get into our material real quickly here. And it's kind of, uh, it's... Uh, it's a positive negative because I, you know, I'd like to keep going and keep presenting materials and information based upon what I've gathered along the years of working with tribal communities. But I know that 
you know, there's other issues that are that are pressing in tribal lands, and uh, hopefully we'll come up with some type of uh, uh, opportunity to speak with you again. But I really enjoyed doing this, so we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, as I indicated, this partnership has been amazing for me, and I, I really enjoy the Warcry podcast team. Uh, very professional, very well done, and I'm very excited to see what, what we can come up with in the next phase of our relationship. So uh, I want to thank the staff. Uh, our last session, as you were aware of, uh, I came down with the old bug, and so we had to be pre-recorded. Uh, I don't know, and hopefully if there was any inquiries or any responses that were triggered, we could try to answer them along the way. Uh, but your feedback and your input is always uh, special and very important to what we're trying to accomplish. If you remember, the task force idea and the concept was to address and to develop behind the MIWMIP issues and culminate in the pursuit of getting some of the questions answered regarding cold cases and uh, missing and murdered Indigenous individuals and, and women. And that's been the focus of our micro method workshop. We wanted to get you to be able to be developed to that point so that you can begin to take on some of these challenges because these cases are not easy cases. And a, a lot of times they're, they're soul draining because they're, they're so hard to, they're so hard to, to work and to be able to follow up on. And the strategy was to accelerate the task forces in tribal lands and move into case, uh, case management and cold case inquiries because you can't you can't get these questions answered in tribal settings unless you have a uh, a collaborative and you're you're moving uh, specifically and directly on those issues so we want to get on to the next step of now that we've developed this task force now that we've come together we've written our procedures and our protocols and we have our personnel in place and we have if you decided to develop subcommittees which is always a good idea how do we accomplish the uh, working on these cases and getting some inquiries and some questions answered and i think we need to start by having some uh, issues that we're going to cover we're going to cover the concept of case status uh, with regards to cold cases and then what does it take to reopen a cold case and it, you do have to create another a wave, another wave of energy to get a cold case uh, reopened. And then, how do you get the information? How do you get access to those particular cases, or the case file, or the case package? And and all, all those terms are critical because you can't just go up to an agency and say, "Hey, I want to look at a uh, a closed homicide case." Uh, you have to be specific on what you're looking for. So, I want the case file. I want the uh, the police reports and all the specific data regarding uh, our particular victim. And then, you know, the it comes down to whether or not the case is solvable. So uh, I've got a, a matrix that we can screenshot and go over so that you can distribute amongst the, the community members. Uh, you're not going to find this information commonly because it's it's very draining as a case agent to go to a family and tell them that the solvability of your case is, is very, very small. But the more you're missing on a case file or a case package, the less likely that it's going to be solved. And that's just, that's just the nature of these types of investigations. 
So we'll we'll review the solvability matrix. Uh, and there's also a way to use that solvability matrix to be able to give you a start, uh, give you a start and give you insight on the specific case of the of the individual that you're looking into. And then where where and how do we begin? So let's begin by looking at some of the history of what cold cases are. A cold case is, a, is defined as an unsolved murder, unre, unresolved murder, lo, a long-term missing person, a unidentified human remains, or an undetermined death. That's, what's, that's kind of the framework that determines what a cold case is. What's some history of some cold cases? Well, unfortunately in our country, there's been an estimated 242,000 unresolved homicide cases from 20, 1980 to 2016. Uh, it doesn't seem like a lot for a country this vast, but that is, that's roughly 40% of homicides remain unsolved. And that's kind of uh, eye-opening. A lot of people don't understand how we could get in this day and age, have that many cases that are, that are unsolved. The clearance rate from hom for homicides plunged from 78.3 in 75 uh, to just 59% in 2016. And what you're looking at is you're looking at a seismic shift on these types of cases. And experts in the field will tell you, research will tell you that there's a good possibility, especially with all the negativity surrounding law enforcement and driving recruits and professionals away from the law enforcement career field that we're going to see a greater decline in homicide cases uh, solvers, solvability of these cases. It bears to mind that the community needs to become more involved and become more active. Unfortunately, you're seeing some real subtle shifts in how these cases are worked. And if they're not perfect, uh, a lot of times these cases don't go anywhere. And I can tell you that from my experience of working cases for over 20 years, I saw very few, I could count in one hand, how many perfect cases I actually took to, uh, to trial. So you don't get perfect cases. There's always some major gaps. There's always minor details that are, uh, you can't uh, come up with uh, theories as to why certain issues happen. I've, I've heard that uh, one of the big concerns is prosecutors demand a pristine timeline. Well, that's virtually impossible to get on a homicide case because you, you can't account for absolutely every step that an individual takes before they become a victim. And I think a lot of those, a lot of the cases are internally dismantled before they ever get to a point of going to trial and uh, kind of give you a little bit of experience slash information. Uh, what happened in our country, and I think it's in the time frame that we're looking at, the trier of law, T-R-I-E-R, trier of law is a judge. Uh, that's what the judge does. The judge sits on the bench and tries the law that is being charged to the defendant. The trier of fact the trier of fact is a jury, unless it's a bench trial. Then the trier, uh, the trier of fact is the, the judge makes the ultimate decision. But what happened uh, in between this time frame that we're looking at, prosecutors began to assume the role of becoming triers 
of fact. So they dismantled the cases before they would ever get to a jury. And that's unfortunate. It would be very interesting to do a research piece on why a, a prosecutors took on that role, because that's not their role. They're, they're an arbiter of the case is what their job is. The detective creates the investigation. The prosecutor's the arbiter, but the actual trier of those facts is a jury. Uh, it's usually a jury of the peers of the of the defendant. For some reason, that was derailed in our in our criminal justice system, and this is some of the evidence of that. Uh, they're not letting they're not allowing these cases to get to a jury, and they need to get to a jury, and that's why we have so many cases that are just uh, unsolved or uncharged, and and that's unfortunate. And the, the greatest example of that is the declination rates in tribal lands. The declination rates in tribal lands is over 80%. That means that they decline over 80% of all the cases that come to them. And one of the highest, which is uh, just amazing to me, is there it's an 88% declination rate of sexual assaults. Uh, and that's just that's just not that's just uncalled for. Uh, and, and those, I think, are some of the real gaps in this process that I believe need to be addressed and uh, questions uh, answered as to why we are having so many of these cases that don't go anywhere. Uh, and, and these numbers are staggered to me within that time frame. So cold cases are uh, an issue that is really a detriment to the criminal justice system. Uh, and there's going to be challenges during your inquiries as a task force regarding cold cases. Not every agency investigates cold cases the same method. They don't use the same methods. Uh, and one of the things that we tried to suggest years ago was to have every department follow a cold case checklist. And that that somehow that was interpreted as, a, as an insult or challenging that they know how to go about the business. But when you get a case and there's things that aren't done on that case, it basically develops a, a support of that concept of having a checklist so that every agency follows the same process and the same protocol for those investigations. Because someone can close it based on a witness issue, or someone can close it because the defendant doesn't want to talk, or someone else can close it because they lied to federal law enforcement. Uh, or, or witness-related issues. Well, every, as I indicated, every criminal investigation has witness issues. You're not going to find a case that has pristine witnesses in our in our cases. So you have to kind of build that into the response of dealing with your investigation. And you're going to uncover when you begin to look at these cases. And that's the idea: is to grab, pull these cases in and review them and look at the case file and the case package. You're gonna un uncover some inappropriate behavior. Uh, you're gonna find some procedural flaws and you're even going to find some lackadaisical responses to investigative leads because I'll be the first to tell you that in our society, we have American law enforcement has a need to blame the victim. That's just the way that it is. Uh, especially if the victim had any history with with drugs or alcohol or promiscuity or any of those issues where in their in their mind, 
led them to the position and where they be, ended up becoming the victim. But that should never be part. That should never be part of the reason why a case is derailed, uh, because that victim still has alienable rights, and there's still a responsibility as a justice system to bring justice to a victim. Uh, and as a task force, you're going to cover a lot of these issues that are going to potentially sidetrack you or, you know, bring attention to some some improper behavior, but don't lose sight of the fact that you're working on behalf of the victim and on behalf of closure to the family. Uh, and that's what drove me in my cases was that I, and it was, it was a bit controversial because I didn't, I never felt like I was working for the police department. I always felt in my heart that I was working for my victim and my victim needed justice. And my job was the pursuit of justice for the victim and the family. Uh, and the department was basically my sponsor. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they didn't like that because they want to be able to navigate the manpower. And uh, you end up having to realize and you get to a point in your career where what's more important. And to me, it was always the victims, especially when I was working in violent crime and crimes against children uh, is bringing justice to the victim. So just some important information to know about when you start pulling information in what you're going to find. Some of it may be quite disturbing and uh, you know, it's just, just basic report writing uh, is very, it should, that should be one of the fundamental foundations of law enforcement is uh, appropriate report writing. But a lot of times, uh, and some of you may even have gotten some information that there's not even reports written. They don't take the time to actually write a, a police report, much less write it accurately, or appropriately, or using proper language and sentence structure. It's really unfortunate, but it's a reality of, of the criminal justice system. So reopening a cold case. Does anybody have any questions before we go on to uh, reopening a cold case? Um, I think there was just just a little bit of clarification for us that are not prosecutors and aren't law enforcement. Um, this term about being solved and about being having a clearance rate, I right. think I want to just recap that really quickly and to say that um, the clearance rate it, for law enforcement means an arrest typically. And those are terms that are utilized by um, a reporting program, basically a federal reporting program that defines right. that. And solving what, I mean, I think what most co common people and community members like myself think is in the courtroom, being prosecuted, having right. a conviction. And so those those terms aren't necessarily the same, but as far as as far as law enforcement can go sometimes, they can only go to the clearance rate, which usually means a charge or in the event that uh, the person has died or the suspect has um, passed away that they've taken that as far as they can go. Yeah. And that's, a, that's a, there's a, there's a couple of options for closed cases. There's a close by arrest uh, and there's, there's closed by other, which is what you, the scenario you talked about, which means uh, the defendant or someone key to the investigation has expired and therefore the case can't go any farther. There's exceptional clearance. And exceptional means that there's an exception as to why, why that case was uh, 
for example, if uh, if you're working a burglary, a couple of burglary cases, and the result of that burglary was someone was murdered by that suspect during the course of the burglary, you charge them with the 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 murder, and the other burglary cases are closed by exception. So it basically becomes a priority. Uh, and then there's closed unknown. And unknown is basically a, just an open classification for a case. And those those are normally cases that are embroiled with maybe witness issues or lack of forensics or lack of what details may be required by a, a prosecutor. And the, the other thing is, is that one of the other unfortunate issues is that cases can be closed by plea agreement too. Uh, so if you get a case and you take it to a, uh, an issuing attorney, it's normally a prosecutor, and they decide to plead out, well, that, that case is closed once it's spread out because they have to, they come into the courtroom and then they work off the plea and that negotiated plea is basically the adjudication of the case or the case is done. So, and you know, they're supposed to ask the victims with regards to if that plea agreement's acceptable, but I, it, it doesn't happen a lot of times because the, uh, you know, the prosecutors get to a point where they, they kind of run the, the, the investigation, which that's just the, that's just the poor investigator that basically wants to get rid of, get the, get the case off of their, their case file or their area of responsibility. So they allow the prosecutor just to close the case, even though it may not deliver justice, but they'll let it, uh, but that's, a, that's, those are good points. And someone else mentioned something? I'm going to mention um, the need for improved communication um, because if you're the family member, it's really challenging to know how law enforcement is communicating with other resources. You know, such as um, you know state entities or the FBI. So just communication, and I've heard that from families over and over again, the biggest challenge they have is just simply communication. Communication of the various entities are in, that are involved in some of these cases. And a lot of times what they'll do is they'll, they'll actually meet and confer and discuss uh, minus the families. It's unfortunate, but it, it is one of the realities of systems. What is supposed to, the way the system is supposed to be structured is that uh, every prosecutor's office should have victim advocates. And the victim advocates are the ones that are tasked with the responsibility of networking with the families and keeping the families up to date with regards to the status of their ongoing case. But uh, a lot of that, gets muddied when it comes to tribal cases because of the jurisdiction, because the state has advocates, the federal government has advocates. Uh, so, it, and even some of the tribes ha have ad advocates. So it's, it, it all depends as to in whose jurisdictional lap the investigation falls into. And once you figure that out, then you have to then find the supportive victim advocates. But every one of those systems, uh, receive uh, federal dollars for indigenous victims and victims advocacy. That was one of the things that was bothersome to me when I came up to your community was that you had you had families doing car washes to be able to 
bury their loved ones when that's not supposed to happen when it comes to the uh, victims assistance funds that are allocated to for uh, tribal victims and tribal families. That's what it's for. That's what that money's for. And I don't know if you remember when we when we spoke uh, at the very beginning was that was one of the things that I brought to the attention of the Justice Department at a conference in uh, Palm Springs was that they were said they were sitting on over a trillion dollars of victims assistance funds for tribal communities uh, and what to do with that money because you know it it had compiled and gotten to such a large pot that the current administration that that we don't want to talk about was interested in using that pot of money for the Afghan war because it was just sitting there and no one had submitted a plan on what to do with that money so the justice department wanted input from the tribes and if there was no input then it was going to be reallocated for the the war in afghanistan and uh, i i went to i attended the session and there was only two tribes there crit uh colorado river indian tribe was there and navajo was there there was no other tribes there and the, those two tribes spoke through this panel of justice officials with regards to those victims assistance monies and uh you know one of the suggestions that we made is why don't you just earmark it and let the tribes decide what to do with it as far as victim assistance why do you have to use it and 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 manage it if it's allocated for tribes and what we come to find out later was that that money was sitting in the u.s attorney's office for each district and if it was not requested officially and formally requested that those funds were then, it was allowable for that prosecutor's office to use that funding to balance their budget for the fiscal year, which was ridiculous. But anyway, that's that's what happened with that particular pot of money. And then it was very unfortunate no one was there, but you know, the short notice and the conference set up and things of that nature, it doesn't surprise me. It's kind of, it's kind of the way they do business. So, and that's one of the, that's one of my challenges with, and I'll, I'll put this out there just so everybody is aware. And that's one of the reasons why I, uh, when these, when tribes develop these task forces, you have to remember that justice department is, does not have the best interests of the tribe and at heart, they don't. That's why you have to become your own advocates for your own tribal community and your own victims and your own tribal cases. Because this these types of shenanigans go on all the time, all the time. And it, our friends in Idaho, they wanna, they wanna work with the feds with their task force. And I said, well, that's fine. That's fine if that's what you wanna do. Uh, if you wanna be friends with them, that's fine. If you wanna work with them and collaborate with them, that's fine. But remember, we're at over 6,000 victims, and in many cases, because of them. So I, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. We got here because of your lack of follow-up and your lack of procedural protocol and your lack of investigative techniques and your lack of so, uh, oversight and support. So we're, also, we're supposed to King's X now and everybody's fine. It just 
to me, it just doesn't, with my case management background and my investigative background, it doesn't make sense to me. So we'll yeah. just leave it at that. So, well, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> I'm just, and I brought that up on supportive families again, who have repeatedly over and over said just this lack of communication is very frustrating. So thank you. It is very frustrating. Yeah. So, uh, reopening cold cases, uh, Five reasons why a cold case should be real. Advancements in forensic technology, uh, previous evidence can, can now be examined due to technological advances. And we're getting information that uh, technology with, re with regards to treat treatment of evidence, there's three or four new techniques developed every year. Every year, new techniques are developed for forensic technology and changes in interpersonal relationships over a period of time, changes the dynamics of, of witnesses and their statements and their input, new leads based on case and evidence review, increased public support and public input, especially if there's an ongoing campaign to get our MMIW, MIP cases solved. I recently saw in uh, Alaska a billboard that was trying to create new energy for an, uns an unsolved case. And I asked an inquiry, uh, was there, is that working? And they said, yeah, we've been getting about two or three new leads a month. So whenever you develop a new PSA or a public service campaign, you're going to be able to create some new investigative support for that investigation. Improvements in information management, cross-referencing databases. Uh, and that's one of the, the big advantages we've seen recently is the change in how information is managed. So database, database hits have to be reviewed. And here's what one of the challenges are. There's been a big push to cross-pollinate forensic and crime databases uh, since the unfortunate increase of community shootings and school shootings. So what they, one of the first things that they said was that we didn't want all of these state, federal and municipal databases not to be able to cross pollinate. So they started linking them together. But each one of those databases has informa case information in there, suspect information, vehicle information, so on and so forth, that can be advantageous to the case agent. But here's the issue. A lot of, once a case has become cold, hit notifications on perpetrator crime or incident are not followed up on because the case package is just sitting there. And the only way that these computer hits are responded to is if the case is currently being case managed or an actively assigned case. So even though you're getting information and input on that particular investigation, those hits aren't being investigated. And a hit means that uh, you've entered some information into your computer system with regards to whatever method of MO, uh, modus operandi of the crime or vehicle information or potential uh, likeness and image of the individual, any of that stuff that you've made inquiries into your into a database. Well, once the database is cross-pollinated, which they have, 
you start getting hits or responses to your inquiries. But if, if a time has periods gone back by and that causes cases of cold case or just sitting in a corner in a file or an evidence locker locked up, those computer hits are not followed up on. So, and there's a theory, uh, an investigative theory that all cold cases need to be rerun using new search technologies because of that cross-pollinization. And I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, but I can tell you that it's it's in a in the majority of these cases, it's not being done because uh, it's either manpower issue or case has been closed or uh, there's not an interest in the solving solving of that particular investigation. So that's what database hits are, and these database hits, uh, some of them can it can take years, uh, years to get a response to an inquiry, and as long as these databases are continually interfacing, which they are, you know, your responses for what your inquiries have are, may just be sitting there. So that's why I think it may not be a bad idea to rerun using all the search technology that's available. So release of information and case access. Oh, Once, hold on, Chris. Go ahead. Real quick. Um, is there a uh, law enforcement that is applying that investigative theory right now, no. for example, like Washington State or no, no, okay, may not be a bad idea. Uh, but you know, when we get to where do we start? That's probably one of the main things is that you have to kind of glean away your individual tribal cases, and we'll talk about that. So one of the task force greatest challenges is going to be obtaining access to case information or case files. And there's a couple of methods that are available to a community. Uh, and several states vary on releasing closed or cold case information. But there has been some real changes over the recent uh, several years. And I think a lot of it has to do with the pressure that tribes have placed on murdered and missing indigenous women and missing indigenous persons. I think that public pressure and that tribal uh, inquiry and support uh, has began to change kind of the, uh, the concepts with regards to releasing of information. Uh, because I mean, it's, it's pretty much an open and closed issue that they're not looking into these cases. And I think the more tribes continue to inquire, the more they begin to get criticism. And that's, that's, that is totally, in my opinion, that is totally because of the movement of the MMIW, MIP and tribal lands. Because now they're trying to say, why haven't you done this? So option one, cold case murder investigations in the United States are public record. Uh, so once a cold case has un unsolved and it goes into a, a, a case file, a case package, and it's no longer actively being investigated, then it's considered public record. You can view cases based upon your uh, area law enforcement public access request. Now, what you'll do is you'll go to your department's or the, the neighboring department, neighboring agency, 
that was the initial responder. Uh, so that's the first thing you're going to have to do is find out who the initial responder and what jurisdiction it occurred in. Say, for example, if it was uh, if the victim was missing from Toppenish, you'd go to Toppenish PD and you'd say, I want to make a public access request of this particular victim's case file. Now, they're going to initially there may be some, well, who are you? So on and so forth. And they're, but they're going to consult with their attorney. And they're going to realize that under that federal mandate, that information is now available to the public. Now, they do have the right to redact information, and they also have the right to charge you. I think normally it's right around $10. Uh, and if you can get it on a, a drive, a zip drive, it's probably going to be cheaper than getting all the documents copied. But that's the first way that you get information. Uh, I would suggest if your task force wants to review a cold case from your tribal community, I would I would suggest obtaining uh, a letter from the family to allow you to do that. Uh, you don't have to because uh, it's a public record now, but it's 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 more or less a uh, you're doing it more as a uh, uh, an advisory or polite, being polite with the family and uh, being sensitive to their loved one. And, you know, so public access request is the first option. Okay. Option number two is what's called a FOIA. FOIA is Freedom of Information Act if the case is federal. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, they can't tell you no, which I think is really cool. Uh, they can't tell you no, uh, but what you have to do is you have to make contact with the relevant authority and make an initial request and say, we are going to be filing a FOIA uh, with the U.S. Attorney's Office, if that's uh, a federal case, regarding our, this victim who's a tribal, right? And then give them either a letter or send them an email. That's under federal law, they have 20 days to respond to you. And also within that 20 days, they will also tell you what, if anything, is required for you to receive that case file. But they can't tell you no. Make a request to receive and review specific information uh, or the entire case file. For example, for example, uh, you want your initial report, you want your medical examiner's report, uh, you want any witness statements, and you want any additional uh, evidence, uh, copies of evidence that was uh, reviewed at the scene. And there's no charge. And the good thing is, is there's a very simple tutorial on the Department of Homeland Security's website. Uh, and again, this was done, in my opinion, this was done, this change came about because of the pressure from tribes that said enough is enough. We want, we're going to start asking critical questions about our tribal members uh, pending or current investigations, which I, thought, I think is really cool. That's how you bring about change. So that's option two, FOIA. 
so often what we hear when we ask information about cold cases is the federal government is not going to release information on uh, open or they call these active cases, even though they're cold cases. So I think the terminology and even knowing that as people outside of law enforcement, how do we re-clarify or make sure that what we're asking for, we're entitled to, I guess. Yeah, I, it would be under, there is a, uh, it's, there's case law called Cox versus Collins. And under Cox versus Collins was kind of the COX versus Collins, C-O-L-L-I-N-S. Under Cox versus Collins, that ruling was the clarification and the support of community members receiving information through the filing of, of FOIAs. Because it, it, that information cannot be protected uh, any longer once the case is closed. So once there's a closure of that case, and remember, they have to respond in 20 days. Uh, and a lot of times what they're going to admit to is that the case is closed. So it's just a, uh, it's a hindrance that's put in the way intentionally to try to derail inquiries, but it's pretty much, uh, they no longer have the capacity to do that with communities. And even your, your local, your local, law enforcement agency probably doesn't even know you if you walked up to one of their detectives and asked them what Cox versus Collins is they wouldn't even know so you probably walk up to a couple commanders and ask them uh explain to me Cox versus Collins and uh the filing of FOIA they they're not gonna know to they will probably spend more trying to, more time trying to discourage the community as opposed to just filing the information and releasing the information. So it's best to just say, you know, okay, I understand. Okay, I, I understand. And then go ahead and file anyway, because there's, it's just, you know, one of the methods used to keep your arm's length from some of the, remember what I said at the, at the beginning, what you're going to get in the form of information on these case files is going to surprise you. Uh, and I think that's, probably one of the biggest issues with cold cases and MMIW cases is that a lot of those cases were not properly investigated. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think, I'll, I think I go into that in, in a minute as to how and why, but, uh, and so they're trying to protect that, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's their, it's their way to protect their poor investigative responses. That's what the, that's why they're they're trying to derail you is what they're trying to do. But these are legal options, acceptable options, and well-known options to get case information. Uh, once they get a FOIA, they have no choice. And but if you do get a challenge or you get a conflict or you get a response that's unfavorable, your next step is probably the the, in my opinion, the best. I I I like step three. And I, I always use step three the most. Uh, step three is a file an order to show cause. And what a order to show cause is, it's, it, it sounds like it's a big deal, but it really isn't. All you're doing uh, is that tactically and, and kind of to go back on what your input was, tactically agencies will force you to this method because they fear 
disclosing sensitive information or material in the case. But what this step, what this step does is it makes the individual or agency justify and explain to a judge why they are refusing to comply to this request that you have total right to. And the reason that this step is helpful is because a judge can then issue a court order to release that case file or that case cold case information within a certain time frame. And if they do not release that information within a certain time frame, then the judge can move forward and have a criminal contempt charge issued against the individual or the agency. Now, the reason that they're not going to want to do that is because if it's a federal case, number one is federal prosecutors do not want any criminal contents on their records because then it, they don't get the choice assignments that they want or their choice appointments that they want. So they'll back out. And police departments, it's not good for them to be charged with criminal contempt. So, and it, it will usually be the, the administrator or the commander that is the supervi supervisor of the uh, investigating officer. So this is the kind of like your last step effort. It does work. Uh, I, I've used it occasionally and they don't like a civilian coming in and telling them uh, basically that they're being inappropriate with this information. But it's something you have the right to have access to. They're just trying to derail you intentionally. Any questions on this? With the dynamics of the task force in the community, uh, like the task force is voicing the voice of the community, is there a way to determine like what cold cases to approach first as a task force as way not to either step on people's toes or say like this one's more important than this one, if there's like a, a method to that. What I would look for is I would look for a couple of things. Number one, family that is still committed to the information and the closure of their loved one's case, the, the families that still have the energy and still have that positive momentum to get the case solved. Secondly, the, those that were questionable to begin with, with regards to knowing potentially who the suspect was, uh, some information, some quality suspect information would be the second uh, level of priority. The third one would be the one that the, the case where the, the uh, community still has a lot of energy or inertia about regard, for example, that there was one that was very uh, outstanding with regards to uh, violence or one that was uh, everyone is aware wasn't, and they talk about that wasn't necessarily the true scenario was how it played out, uh, but there's been rumor and innuendo around it that that would probably be the third uh, level of case that I believe would be worthy of pursuit. The cases that are really, really old, like in the 50s and 60s, uh, those are just going to be more general review of the case file, the case package. And when we get into the matrix, you'll, you can see why uh, 
a lot of those cases, solvability are, are, are really limited. Uh, but you will get some information, I'll, I'll get into that, that'll, that may prioritize your case a little bit. Uh, once you've received the case file, then you need to carefully review all the material and potential filing information. Uh, it's best to have a checklist uh, and I'll go over the matrix, which is the matrix basically is a checklist. But what you're looking for is glaring mistakes or gaps in the timeline, or you may even have to create a timeline. Uh, and the important thing about the timeline is not necessarily the time of death, but uh, what you're looking for in a timeline is people that may have had contact along the course of uh, the time frame that they believe before the, the victim expired. Uh, so contacts, individuals that family relations, uh, conversations, history of individuals they were in contact with, things of that nature, that's what you're looking for. Missing materials, you're looking for materials that may be missing, and also interviews that may be missing. Uh, you'll read a face sheet. A face sheet is basically uh, the initial report. And in that initial report, you'll, you may find some individuals that like the reporting party and where if the reporting party was the person that contacted 911 and that's what the initial report is, there should be a, 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 a very detailed interview with that person that made the initial report. If there's not, then that's probably a good step to start with. Uh, because a lot of times there may be other people there, but they didn't want to come to the attention of law enforcement. So when you talk to that reporting uh, witness, then you'll start kind of determining who, what other people may or may have not been present and why they weren't spoke to. If they're not there, uh, when the 911 call comes out or when the initial report is met and law enforcement responds to the scene, chances are they didn't follow up to the reporting uh, parties associates uh, to get their perspectives. So that's something that needs to be done. But bear in mind, the older the cases, the harder it's going to be to get certain pieces of information. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, that's one of the challenges. So the case matrix will not only show you if the case may be solvable, but it will also show you where you need to start. Uh, and the concept is on uh, a case matrix is the more points you have compiled, the greater opportunity to solve the case. That's the whole concept behind an investigative matrix. And this is what uh, one would look like. It's kind of a sample matrix, but you can uh, pretty much do whatever you want. But if you, if you look, it's broken down into evidence, victim, informant, witness, suspect, case documents that's the breakdown uh and i don't i don't even know what the total point uh culmination is but you can you can screenshot this and take a look at it for those of you that are interested in having a, a matrix so for example is it fingerprints recovered five points because if you have fingerprints you potentially have people at the scene now uh the question is going to be what happened to those fingerprints so if you have a case package and you see that there was fingerprints obtained at the scene, but you don't have any report written on 
whether those those fingerprints were submitted for review or maybe those fingerprints now because at the time the uh technology wasn't present so now you can actually resubmit those those fingerprints to find out if there's any person on an active uh database dependent upon when the case was issued uh positive identification of a potential suspect fingerprints available from other and you want fingerprints to eliminate people as well so that's and then was there any trace evidence at the crime scene if there was trace evidence what happened to it was it submitted was it reviewed was it analyzed because you you can at a lot of crime scenes in most crime scenes you're going to find fibrous material because it's it's very hard any anymore especially with the majority of our clothes being nylon now and also a lot of cotton-based materials it's it's very very seldom do you not find trace uh fibers at a crime scene but the question goes to what was done with that that evidence was it submitted was it reviewed things of that nature same thing with weapons or or forensics and uh i tell people this all the time as a joke but it's uh, it's sad that i've been out of the business for a number of years now and i still have i, I have individuals that are still in prison uh from cases that i worked and i still have not gotten the forensics back on those cases and i've been out for over 20 years and sometimes the report they don't they just don't follow up they don't think there's a need to you know do the forensic examinations on some of these cases based upon the detail in the cases and that's just unfortunate but that's crime labs cost money and i think a lot of families a lot of victims don't realize that and somebody has to pay a tech and a crime lab to process evidence and if you have a small department and that department is on a shoestring budget, you know, that is one of the reasons why your forensic evidence is not being processed because it, it's expensive, very expensive. So, you know, families need to bear that in mind as well. Uh, victim, uh, victim identification, things of that nature, informant, if there was any paid or otherwise. Now there are times where cases you're going to see that when you read a case file, uh, you're going to recognize from the interview of individuals that they may know more than they let on at the time of the investigation. Now, what you're looking at potentially, not always, but potentially, you may be looking at an individual that may be a working law enforcement informant. Uh, and because they're a working law enforcement informant, they will not detail uh, interview them uh, because they don't want out, they're trying to protect their informational source. So, uh, you know, you'll find that in cases you'll review and it, you'll get that instinct say, man, this, this guy seems, or this lady seems like she knows a lot more than what she's, what she's brought out in, the, in this interview. Well, if the interview is cursory, there's a reason why that interview is cursory. And if you don't find a detailed taped interview that's been uh, transcribed from that individual witness, it may be because they may have some, uh, they may be an informant for law enforcement.
So keep that in mind. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't have them re-interview or speak to them uh, if the case is closed. Witnesses, there's different types of witnesses. There's direct incident witnesses, there's support witnesses, there's family witnesses. Uh, and a lot of times there these layers of witnesses are not properly interviewed for some unknown reason. The whether the it's either the haste of the investigation, the end of, and here's one of the things that a lot of community members and families don't understand is that a investigator, a case agent, will get a feel for a case. And when they get a feel for that case, and they that feel for the case is the case is not solvable, you'll you'll see them in the in the form of their investigative work, you'll see them start pulling back from being aggressive on uh, the interviews and the investigation and and filling out. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of individual investigators don't like using the checklist because you have to, if you have to complete this every case, uh, it is it is quite a lot to do. But again, it all it all goes back to uh, justification and it always goes back to working on behalf of the victim. So just bear that in mind. Yeah, and you'll find this when you start opening it, these cases. Uh, I saw one, they asked me to consult on a, uh, a murdered uh, retired BIA agent and uh, in North Dakota. And uh, they said, Could, would you mind looking at the case file? And I thought it was going to be a massive case file. And I said, no, uh, I'll, I'll look at it. I'll, I'll review it real quickly. Uh, but I don't know how much I could do because the, uh, the individual had been uh, expired for quite some time. I said, but sure, I'll look into it. So I looked into the investigation. First of all, it was only like six pages of material. And I was like, are you kidding me? Six pages? Uh, that was it. That was the entire investigation. And uh, it to me, the way I read it, it read very suspicious, very suspicious. Because they the the they said the method of death was suicide uh, by overdose, and there but there was no pills in the house, and on the uh, at the crime scene photographs, it there was a pill bottle on the ground, but it was like very expired for many many years. So it just it looked to me like it was placed there, as opposed and then the the pill bottle was never processed for uh, fingerprints. So there was a lot of questions that I had with regards to that particular investigation, mainly because it was only six pages, but uh, nonetheless, you know, you start, start using the solvability matrix and, uh, you know, it kind of gives you some direction. So any question on the matrix? I had a um, clear, clarification question just for our audience that can is um, listening to this podcast and not viewing it. Chris has a cold case solvability matrix. Let's try that again. Chris has a, <laughs> there's so many C's. Chris has a cold case solvability matrix up on the screen where there's a series of um, items as well as the score that aligns with it. And on the top, it says date of incident. Um, we've been talking about cold cases here. And I just want to clarify for our, our audience and for myself, 
what is a cold case? Does it have to be past a year? Is it longer? Is there differences in what the county considers a cold case compared to like FBI? And that's one of the challenges is that dependent upon, and a lot of cases in tribal communities, they there's layers of jurisdiction and every jurisdiction will have their own methodology in determining whether it's a cold case or not. So uh, it's got to be basically reviewed as a case by case issue. That's why you make the inquiry uh, initially to the closest law enforcement agency where the report initiated. And you'll find out what their, uh, what their procedure is with regards to uh, their storage of their closed cases or cold cases, whatever they may call them. Uh, so it's got to be on a case by case issue because of this layering dynamic with jurisdiction and tribal lands. So that's that's my best response for that inquiry. But that's a good question. It's a really good question. Each each jurisdiction is going to be different. Well, and then similar to um, the previous question I had regarding communication, uh, in the increased communication and improvement in communication, uh, that also goes to this matrix that's been put together, you know, I think it's important to highlight the role of communication between these different jurisdictions. And what are those jurisdictions and how do they, what is their methodology? And as you said, everyone is going to be different, but what are they doing to help seriously solve some of these issues? And it sounds like, you know, that may not be on the priority, the top priority, you know, of some of the law enforcement agencies. So when you think about it from a family perspective, and you begin going through this, and would you say you had one that you, a cold case file you reviewed, and you had like only six pages, and it was suspicious? Yes. So yeah, so that is a major issue is just the communication again. Uh, I'm looking at evidence, victim, information, all of these categories. And just thinking about every step of the way, again, about communication and who has what, which jurisdiction has this. And as you get into cold cases, then, then you have various agencies that are part of the process, that can be a part of the process if, if brought into the cold case. So it just, there's so many, I guess, variations or that you can take a look at a, any cold right. case. One of the things you can do, it's good input, Patricia. One of the things, one of the things you can do to find that out, which was prompted by your inquiry, which I think is really a positive idea here, is that uh, each agency is supposed to be managed using rules and procedures and that is how departments are supposed to manage their personnel their casework and their processing of information and their their work with the community so what you can do is you can go to an agency or you probably can even go online to that department and pull up their rules of operating rules and procedures and actually go to the segment of investigations and review, scroll through that those pages and see what their process is with regards to cold cases. It should be online. I know, I know our agency or the agency I used to belong with 
belong to in Arizona, in Tucson, uh, they do have their rules and procedures online. So you can, and that includes their investigative rules and procedures. So you can go through that particular uh, chapter and see how they're supposed to manage those jurisdictional issues. Uh, however, you may also bear, bear in mind that uh, you, there could be some historical conflict as well uh, in law enforcement. And we're seeing that, unfortunately, we're seeing that play out now with this, this last uh, school shooting where you can read between the lines, not, it's not even subtle. It's pretty obvious that some of those agencies don't like each other based upon the release of information, the undermining of, of uh, press releases, and also the, uh, uh, the, the community comments regarding procedures and responses that certain agencies took. And what that tells you is that not every law enforcement agency in that jurisdiction get along and they're not on the same page. And historically in Arizona, we have, we have the same issues as well. There's certain agencies that you don't like working with and you distrust them and you don't readily exchange information with them because you don't like them. Uh, and that's just, that's just the nature of law enforcement. So uh, that's good insight, Patricia. And that's also very true. You may find that in your uh, cold case that you're reviewing. Uh, and there may be some uh, real obvious uh, oversights in networking with regional or local or federal law enforcement. And it may be because they don't like that agency. And because they don't make like that agency, they're not gonna give them any of them. That's just the nature of police work, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can I, tell you, they can tell you that you have to work together until they're blue in the face, but that doesn't right. mean you have to work with them. So well, it's unfortunate that, you know, when you take a look at grant applications, um, that organizations say that they will work together. And that's not necessarily true. <laughs> it's not. And so that is an issue. And before you go on, I just had another question about um, examples of costs that families would have to bear in terms of getting forensic evidence, um, because it's not just up to you know certain individuals. There are certain programs or specialties that are involved here. I'm just you know just one example would be a forensic ontologist and um, and perhaps anthropologists as well. So, what are some examples of costs that we're talking about here? Well, you're talking about. Uh, it depends on what you want to do. If you want to have a, uh, for example, if you want to do a, for, say you have a case and you want a forensic examination of a cell phone uh, and you want the phone, uh, what the, the term is to have the phone cracked. And by cracked means to open up the, uh, the, the hard drive and uh, review all of the phone history and also review the, uh, the chip, the microchip in the phone usually runs between thirty-five and $4,500. Uh, drug analysis can be anywhere from uh, 1,000 to 1,500. Uh, it, it all depends. Some of the more detailed like forensic review of a handgun or a weapon that we use that could be several, uh, five to $8,000. It all, it all depends on what you're looking for. Uh, if you want, matching of slug to injury or blade to 
individual that those there's all there's costs associated with that as well so which brings us to our next uh point is the the forensic pathologist report mm, okay. uh, and that's probably the best bit of case detail that you're going to get is when the pathologist reviews the the victim and determines specific information uh, and that's a good starting point and it also will be able to assist the 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 reviewers on whether the details are in the investigation because you'll get information as for example you get what the the injuries that were sustained uh you can determine the type of weapon from the pathologist's report you can determine the degree and the use of force to you know apply that type of injury and usually what happens is you can determine whether there was a uh, you know anger or frustration or just rage involved by the degree of force that was used to make the type of injury uh defensive wounds by the victim would all would uh also be able to give you some information with regards to whether or not they may or may not have known the perpetrator uh, because what you're looking to do is you're looking to have the story retold in the form of uh, evidence from the pathologist's report. Uh, and that information, a lot of times, is not released to the public. Because the de case details in most investigations are protected so that when you talk to individuals, their information that they give you aligns with the physical evidence of the pathologist's report. So that's one of the reasons why they, they don't release certain kinds of information. But once it's a cold case, and remember that the, the objective is to generate inertia and generate interest, and that interest and inertia is supposed to create more support of the victims and bring more individuals out to be able to be interviewed so beginning to release some of that information for example like the the nature of the injury and the degree of force that was used to apply those injuries to the victim is going to kind of stir up the community and 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 may bring up some additional information that was not initially uh, covered during the preliminary or initial investigation. So, and you have to do that on a case-by-case -case basis. I would say the task force would sit down and talk about, well, how much of this do we want to bring out? You know, we want to, we want to uh, you know, you want your, you want your victim to have community support so that they're interested to become involved. You want to develop sympathy for the family sympathy for the victim and that'll bring more inquiry more insight and more uh individuals willing to participate in the process this time uh, the previous time may have been uh, when the case happened it could have been fear could have been intimidation could have been uh not wanting to uh get involved with the criminal justice system but over time you know guilt uh victim support family support can really begin to uh, work on behalf of getting information. Remember the, the departments don't, they aren't going to go back and do that type of detailed work on these cases. 
because again, closed cold means I don't have to work on it anymore. And that's unfortunate, but it's reality. So identify and record all unresolved, this is where to begin. Identify and record all unsolved, unresolved cases within your region. The next step I would do as a courtesy is reach out to the families and get their input on whether they wanna support you or they want you to uh, take on the responsibility to begin to uh, inquire as about their case. And that would be a good time to get some type of documented letter saying that uh, you know they're, they're, the family wants you to look into certain aspects of the investigation or just to review the cold case. Uh, lobby to have your regional cases entered into an unsolved database. In some states, it's it's the norm, and a lot of states, it's not. A lot of states, uh, the the cases are considered dormant, and they they stay that way. And remember, one of the things you're going to do when you look at that case file, you'll see if there was any database inquiries that were made by the investigator previously. Getting that information into a regional or national database may be very helpful to reignite some uh, interest and support and even some investigative needs on that particular case. Conduct a needs, assess a needs assessment to ensure that you're getting the highest quality of investigative response. I think we're at the point now where if you have a agency that consistently closes cases, and consistently doesn't do enough for the victims and the families that I think the communities have gotten enough respect and developed to the point where you need to start making those types of questions and presenting those types of questions. Like, why do we still have this particular person working these cases when we don't have a track record of success? Uh, and one of the things that they're doing, I saw this, uh, so it was signed, the bill that was signed into federal law is a couple of weeks ago, was that uh, departments can no longer hide unqualified or underperforming officers and detectives, that they now have to release their information if the community inquires about them and not allow them to lateral transfer to another police department. And that's that happens so often, I can't tell you how many times people escape consequences by laterally transferring to another agency. But uh, now they're uh, with this new law in place that they'll be able to limit that and communities will be able to access particular personnel files of individuals, which I think is long in long, long coming. We should have uh, done that years ago. And it doesn't matter what level of investigator you are. Uh, and if the region has substantial number of unsolved cases, uh, it's the community can begin to push to develop a, a cold case unit, just uh, individuals that are actively assigned to work cold cases only. That's their only responsibility. Uh, and then demand cross-pollinization. Begin to ask for that layered oversight of these cases and have the community have more input more access, more inquiries. Uh, I think that's what this whole movement is about, in my opinion. This entire movement is about is accountability. And it's, in my opinion, it's something that is 
should have been done years ago. And I, I believe that that's, that's one of the key issues to get closure your families, has, have these inquiries responded to and get support for uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and uh, indigenous persons. A conclusion is, uh, I, I hope that War Cry podcast and National Violence Prevention Resource Center has been of service. Uh, I appreciate this opportunity, and, and I hope that we've been able to provide some insight, uh, some experience to you and your community, and to be able to work with War Cry podcast uh, in, is, was a real privilege for me. And uh, I hope that we, we continue. If there's any other uh, interest or information, please uh, feel free to uh, give us a call. This will conclude our MicroMethod Workshop series. If you have interest in any other additional information, please contact Warcry Podcast or National Wildlife Prevention uh, at gmail.com. Actually, I have a couple more questions that I think my co-hosts do too. You just stirred a whole lot of questions with us with this uh -oh. content. Okay. I have a question about if you, when you talked about going to court and filing an order to show cause, is there an example of families or tribes that have done that or even press outlets? So like if Warcry podcasts sort of file that, is, is there any example of that out there now? Yeah, there's a couple of uh, agencies that uh, I could uh, pull the inquiries down and even send you the format that they used. Uh, absolutely. I, that's, I think that's kind of the next level that needs to be taken with regards to cold cases is, filing these uh, release of information and FOIAs and order to show cause, absolutely. I don't, I don't understand why, uh, and it might just be my uh, being naive, I don't, I don't understand why tribes have not done that on behalf of victims in their communities. It's just, uh, it would seem the logical and the right thing to do is to tell us what the case status is of all of our tribal members' uh, cases historically. Where are, where are the cases and why why are they why are they closed why are they pending what's missing why aren't they being issued for uh, indictment the other question I have is related to the matrix and you know having evidence that because of technology we can resubmit through new technology and have additional forensic information about this um, right. we see that here even locally. I understand there's even agencies, local neighboring agencies to the tribe that have even 3D modeling that can re-complete a scene to a 3D model that you can go in and see it. And our cases actually technically used to go through this um, right. with the tribe, but when PL280 happened and retrocession, those cases that used to go through that as a normal part of procedure, there's no memorandum of understanding at this point that occurs between our neighboring law enforcement agencies that have these forensic tools and our tribe Yakima. So I just wondered if you have seen examples of memorandum of understanding that's happened as a result of task force action or just, is that a pie in the sky kind of thing that'll happen or is that a realistic goal to have? for? No, absolutely. That's, that's an excellent uh, point. And that's one of the things that we do is when we initiate our task forces, we go through a series of MOUs, MOAs with uh, agencies that we think serve the best interests of the, of the tribal community, dependent upon what 
task we're taking on. Uh, one of the things that we're working on right now in Puyallup is uh, the juvenile justice system in Pierce County that's not uh, advising the tribe with regards to juveniles being charged. So we're going to, we're developing an MOU, MOA with them so that we can uh, be on the same notification track once a uh, tribal juvenile is detained. And then the tribe can then provide resources as opposed to having the state manage uh, the wraparound and the follow-up for uh, a tribal juvenile uh, without the family even knowing. So, uh, so yeah, it depends on what, what task you take on. And once you accept the task, uh, then you begin to find out within the framework of your response, which agencies you need to collaborate with and then uh, address each one of those agencies and, and go over an MOA with them and have them sign off. Unfortunately, with most tribes, I don't know what uh, Yakima's uh, protocol is, but uh, you have to take the MOA, MOU to tribal council. Uh, it just can't be the task force. So, but yeah, that's that's a great idea, and you may be able to reignite those processes historically. And I I think a lot of times things are dropped simply because there's not an interest anymore. So, and once those old historical MOAs MOUs expire, then if no one picks up the responsibility or the task, it just kind of just goes by the wayside. Hey, Chris, I uh, really appreciate appreciated this engagement with, with you in uh, your law enforcement background. And I've been pleased uh, when you've also interpreted what, you know, some of the law enforcement language and jargon is. Uh, I would like to see, you know, this similar program um, redevelop up for families. Families would you know, gain a lot of, from this kind of training. And I, I would urge you to consider that. And perhaps we can all work together to advocate for that as well, because there is a need for this kind of information, education for families. That's an excellent point, Patricia. I, I was mentioning to uh, Robin before we went online that I was, in, I was requested by the IHS uh, National Conference in September uh, to actually do that, to do a MMIW navigating criminal justice systems for families. Piece. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're seeing that, uh, and that'll be in Rapid City at the end of September. But uh, I think that's that's real important because, you know, if, if families don't know, and they don't realize that there's a process in place and there's things that they can do uh, and there's actually things they can force people to do, uh, with regards to their loved ones' cases and investigations, I think they just carry the burden of not be able to get their answer, their questions answered, and you know that turns into guilt. Uh, I see that with a lot of families, so right. I think those mm -hmm. are those are great things that families need to be aware of. So I appreciate your well, actually just for your information, the Department of Health and Human Services had a tribal consultation session, and you know, there weren't a whole lot of people on there. And so I was toward the end, I thought, well, I'm gonna say this because I think it's important. Um, you know, in some cases in rural uh, remote communities, you don't necessarily have immediate support or services. And so I made the recommendation uh, because the funding through 
uh, HHS that they should consider, you know, like a Head Start program, which is in many of our rural communities uh, to place some kind of support system there for families uh, in, in those kind of programs that are out in the rural communities. <clears throat> so just want you to know that we'll continue to advocate for that kind of support and awesome. say I really appreciate your efforts. Thank you. Uh, hi, Chris. I thank you so much for doing these workshops. These are amazing. Um, and thank you so much for uh, being our guest previously. Uh, so the question I had, uh, it's kind of more like if you could reiterate a little bit. So you had in a previous portion of this presentation talked about like private investigators uh, in order to help. So when you're talking about cold cases, could you maybe reiterate perhaps how private investigators could aid in this process of perhaps either opening up a cold case or a case? And then uh, I think you had also brought up like who pays for that and how does that get funded? Well, there's a couple of, of ways that are that's currently happening right now. Uh, there is a uh, just a, a national group of retired uh, detectives that are doing pro bono private investigation on behalf of families. Uh, and they actually have a, a, a website that you can go on. Uh, the only challenges is they, the uh, responsibility of obtaining the, the case information is the families. And then you refer it to them and they will, they will use their network to begin to make inquiries. So uh, the pro bono one is, uh, you know, you, you are using individuals with, with history and background. These cases take a lot of legwork. So you have to actually make one-on-one -on -one inquiries. And we haven't, even though we have, have accelerated uh, with technology, a lot of the things we can do, there's still agencies that you have to be able to go individually to, to uh, make some inquiries and follow up on some specific pieces of evidence, especially when it comes to doing interviews. You're not gonna get that depth of interview if, if it's over the phone or if it's, if, if it's even on Zoom. So, one of the things that we've been uh, requesting is to be able to provide funding for uh, communities, tribal communities to hire PIs. Uh, that way it's not burdened by the family to have to come forward with, uh, with, with the funding. And uh, as of right now, the, the idea is, is you make a inquiry through the federal prosecutor's office. And if the federal prosecutor's office finds that it's uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a valuable asset to that particular case. Then they may release some uh, temporary funds, but it, it hasn't been fully developed like it should be because I think. And then there's some tribes where tribal members have come before council and actually asked tribal council for funds to allow them to hire a, a private investigator. So, uh, and there's been some tribes. Uh, uh, particularly in the, the Great Lakes area that have funded, supported families to hire PIs. So uh, there's been a couple of methods that are being used, but I do believe that it, it falls to the responsibility, in my opinion, the Justice Department to begin to release funding in the form of grants to tribes to be able to hire uh, private investigators to do some 
some of the legwork, if not all of the legwork on some of these cases, just to see where the cases are going. And again, it, it may come back to what I said earlier, is that they're trying to protect the information that's in the case file. So, but I think we have to overcome that and realize that, hey, you know, that's just a, a nature of these types of cases. You're gonna have some people that were either underqualified. And, you know, it's, it's funny because the, the FBI already went before Congress and said that BIA law enforcement is un, under-trained, can't manage crime scenes, and are untrustworthy when it comes to veracity to be able to file cases. So, I mean, how much more do you have to say <laughs> to, to be able, I mean, I don't know what they're, what they're fearful of any longer. If feds tell that to Congress, then that's pretty much you know, it, it pretty much encapsulates what the challenges are. So, uh, and the families know that, tribal families know that. I mean, every tribe that I work with, they tell me about the lackadaisical, if any response at all to their investigations and their inquiries from PIA. So it's just, uh, you know, it is what it is. Let's move on. Um, it's such, there's so much important information that was covered over these micro workshops and thank you so much for Chris and my co-hosts for you know joining me in on this conversation and providing this information to our uh, tribal communities. Um, again we are War Cry podcast. We're an indigenous led podcast surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. If at any point during this session, you need culturally appropriate advocacy or support, please contact Strong Hearts Native Helpline at 18447NATIVE or chat online at strongheartshelpline.org. I'm Emily Washings, and thank you to co-hosts Robin Pibashi and Patricia Whitefoot. Thank you again to our guest, Chris Cuestas with the National Violence Prevention Resource Center. For our credits, we have support for this micro workshop series from Na Ilahi Fund. It's edited and produced by Robin Pibashi of Pibashi Studio. Music by Lee Sekokwaktiwa. Logo and shirts by John Only Schellenberger with Native Anthro, where you can also get our merch. Please like, subscribe, leave a comment. If you have a question, we'll let Chris know uh, about any of these micro workshop series. Uh, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, everybody.